I love her stuff so much. <laughs> well, you know, I, I first encountered her like watching because um, I love those big music shows that, you know, like the big they get like every single act and they haul out like all the oldies. You know, there she was like 40 something in her mini skirt, just whipping up like this crowd. It was. Uh, yeah, she's fantastic. So that might be a that might be a way to start on a positive note. Yeah. You know, <laughs> just just vibing out, having a good time. ready to go sure sure all right uh well welcome to the podcast welcome to the idol cast i am here today with uh, a very special guest who i encountered some of his writing and was just blown away and yeah he graciously agreed to come on and talk idols and japan and johnny's and just everything that's been going on and would you like to introduce yourself hi thanks Kara, for having me uh, my name is patrick william galbraith i'm uh, an anthropologist here in Japan. I study popular culture, and uh, I was lucky enough to start my field work in the Akihabara neighborhood. So idols were sort of part of the atmosphere. People were into them. They introduced me to them. So uh, I got sort of early on, you know, when AKB just started up, I was there on the streets winding up with people. So it kind of became part of my larger project. And in 2012, with Jason Carlin, I edited the book uh, Idols and Celebrity in Japanese Media Culture, which was sort of our entry into what had been 
for a while, kind of quiet field. People weren't really writing that much about idols. So we got together and we brought uh, a bunch of scholars who were sort of new to the field, who were, you know, writing about, you know, whether it be particular norms or particular structural features. We brought together all these people who were writing about idols. And uh, to this day, it's one of my favorite pieces I've ever done. So it's really an honor and a pleasure to be talking with you about idols today. Yeah, it's a really great piece. Um, I I found the book at the library, and um, you know, and one of the things that really caught my attention um, is is you picked on something that I try keep trying to explain um, to my you know readers and listeners is and let me I've got the line. Hold on, you say. Um, that fiction is part of the makeup of an idol. And see, I always call this the idol kayfabe, as in like pro wrestling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm. um, but yeah, it, it is that there is that fictional element. And I loved, I just love that you uh, really delve into that. And you know how it's real, but it's not real. And um, yeah, just like a pro wrestling kayfabe is real. You know, these are actual performers in the ring doing real stunts but it's also not real and um yeah I I think that um a lot of the more recent writing that I've encountered on idols um it doesn't it's for whatever reason that that piece seems to get lost and I don't know if it's because you're there on the ground and a lot of us you know foreigners writing on this in English or overseas and we're a little further removed you know we're only dealing in images basically yeah, I mean, images are a huge part of it for sure. You know, especially we try to divide it up. Jason and I try to divide things up into sort of epochs. And in that early phase when it was all television, you know, from the 70s into the 2000s, 2010s, even when it was still struggling along. During that time period, you know, the, the chance you had to see your idol was really on television or at a concert, you know, where it's a big group of people. It was really at a distance, you know, so images were a huge part of the makeup and people began to play with the images and transform them in particularly uh, interesting ways or, you know, also lean into the, the fiction in some ways. So it was really a, 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 fan, uh, a fascinating time. But now we're kind of in this new phase where you have, on the one hand, idols who are, you know, engaging with their fans physically, bodily, like shaking hands saying hello, remembering the names, you know, all that kind of stuff. And you have on the other side, people who sort of leaned into the image is everything, where you have sort of like virtual idols and, you know, say you idols and that kind of thing. So I think it's kind of an interesting phase we're in right now where there's so many idols competing for attention, but not necessarily in the same way they used to. You know, you mentioned uh, the book, and when we wrote the book, it was really uh, about that, that television phase when Japan sort of had uh, a lockdown on all of its television entertainment, and they were really focusing on idols as a way to capture the domestic audience, you know? Yeah, I mean, I remember just as a foreigner trying to access some of that stuff, and yeah, it was pretty it was pretty difficult uh, because I, I first became interested in, in idols around um, Hanayori Dango and, you know, Arashi and... Um, and I came in via that way and yeah, it was, that was like mid two thousands and you really had to hit the back streets of the internet to find some of this stuff. And now you can just go to dial it up on Twitter or YouTube or Netflix and it's all right there for you. Yeah. Things have gotten a lot better. You know, it's a great time to be a fan of, of idols because, you know, you have 
the K-pop, which sort of leads the way, opening up these channels. You have, as you mentioned, things like Netflix, airing documentaries and all this stuff. And you just have people who are archiving and introducing music in the way that they, they couldn't before, you know. I remember old mixtapes. Some people used to call it noise, where literally you would take all this different music from Japan and sort of smash it together and like, this is what Japan sounds like. And of course, there was no genre distinctions or anything. It was just basically everything put together, including idols. But more recently, you have curation going on where fans themselves are sort of showing us great music, introducing some of these old great acts and then remixing them and making them more palatable for uh, the audience today. So, you know, it's, it's a great time. I think, to be a fan of J-pop, K-pop, C-pop, all of it. Yeah, I, one of the things that I've noticed or I've encountered are, um, I'm sure you're familiar with Saijo Hideki. Yes, yeah, yes. There is a whole wave of new fans of Saijo Hideki who are really, I don't know what it is within the last like few years, um, and they're really just trying to popularize him. You know, he's he's passed away, sadly, but... Um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've encountered them. They're very nice, um, very nice ladies of a certain age. And yeah, they just, they love Sajo Hideki. And some of them are even, you know, new fans within the last few years. And um, yeah, it is interesting. These older, even these older icons are getting, getting new life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Tatsuro just put out an album. It's it's like it's it's really interesting to sort of see how people who are sort of lost. Yamashita, you know, I, I don't want to go too much inside baseball, but mm. he was always kind of like he he had a, a grudge that he wasn't like as known as he could have been in his early days, you know. Yeah. And so it's it's so fascinating to see that now, today, because of global fans. His music is becoming more recognizable, more famous, and then he gets picked up and gets in a, another album, you know, in 2023. It's just, it's amazing. Yeah, it's, yeah, it is interesting when you see what gets picked up and then delivered back. I mean, I feel like that's the whole, like a lot of the city pop, right? It got like picked up overseas and then, and then returned as like this cool new, cool new thing. But, absolutely. Um, yeah. No, you're absolutely right. It, it's, it sort of sounds like, you know, classic Japan, where it's like, it, we didn't know it was cool until people told us it was cool. <laughs> like, yeah. And then you end up with like, yeah, of course, it was always great music. But then, you know, it, it takes that kind of recognition from outside to say, oh, that's right. City Pop was cool. I don't 
know where we want to start. Um, well, why don't we start here? So, so what exactly was it that got you first interested in um, in Japan? Were you an anime person, or? Yeah, yeah. Um, great question. So I think I got interested through a lot of different things. I'm from Alaska, and so at the time in the '80s, Japan was number one. Everyone wanted to learn about education and business and all that stuff. And my brothers, uh, my two oldest brothers, were really interested in kind of Japanese language. And the way they thought they could learn it was through kind of osmosis by watching Japanese cartoons under the influence, of course. You know, so they had a little bit of the wacky tobacco. And they were thinking that that would sort of help them to bring in and, and you know, soak up the Japanese language. They're watching all these uh, cartoons, you know anime as I later learned it was but things like Nausicaa the Valley of the Wind, Bubblegum Crisis and Megazone 2-3 and Macross and it was all like obviously too adult for a, a good kid like me. My brothers and I are separated by many years and so when I was watching them watch these cartoons like it just blew my mind. I'm like that's not Disney what is this? And so I got really into it and things like Macross introduced me to idols and, you know, that kind of world, but in a really emotional way, like I didn't necessarily know everything there was to know about uh, all this stuff. It was in a different language, whereas we're watching it in Japanese. So I didn't understand maybe not, not even 80% of it did I understand. I was more like 20% just trying to follow along as best I could. But that made me even more sort of um, obsessed with it when I got older. Like I wanted to know more about the language. I wanted to know more about the people behind the cartoons. I wanted to know more about the, in the infrastructure and industry. And that sort of got me into eventually coming to Japan and working as an anthropologist. So it, it was kind of just an obsession that never ended. I think because I was so close in some ways, but so far away. You know, I, that distance I felt with my brothers was always there for me, where it was always kind of like, I felt like I was in the room, but never quite there, you know? I moved down to Montana when I was about 12, and the same thing happened there. You know, I was watching Sailor Moon, I loved it, I loved the music, I loved the, the animation, I loved the stories, I loved the voice actors. But I had no one to talk to about it. I didn't go to conventions. I didn't have a chance to sort of get out there with people. So it just kind of built up in me. It's just kind of like, I want to know more. I want to know more. And then eventually I had the chance through the University of Montana and the Mansfield Center to go to Japan. And that was uh, sort of the beginning of uh, long-term research for me. You know, that, that just wanting to know more, and especially in the years before the the internet was really so pervasive and you could just Google everything. That's, yeah, that's a, a very driving um, motive. And I, yeah, I've definitely felt some of that myself. So I, I understand. <laughs> Although yeah. I, I went into uh, librarianship, not anthropology. Um, but so when you got to Japan, was this like the early 2000s, I guess? Or Yes, okay. yes. 2004 about. 2004 okay and so did you what did you notice about like idols in the culture like when you got there were you overwhelmed was it was it something that you're like oh okay now I understand what I was seeing on on the anime all those years or what did you think 
Yeah, so for me it was uh, a big wake-up call because I'd been watching animation through videotapes and later DVDs and you know slowly through through channels on more mainstream channels. But it was uh, more or less kind of music at a distance. I remember one time I was in a class and I made this pamphlet of all the idols that I wanted people to know about. And I slapped it down on the desk of my of my Japanese class. I'm like, take a look at this. This is what we don't know about. We need to know more about these figures. And my teacher was kind enough not to point out how autistic I was being. And it's like, hey, you know, actually, this is great, but we're just not for class right now. You know, <laughs> let's talk about this later. But so I had like an image that I knew a lot. And then when I came to Japan, um, you know, there was just so much stuff like in the everyday life of things. So 2004, that would have been the time when you know, Snap and Johnny's were at their at their peak in many ways. And so I saw all this stuff around me and it wasn't what I had been aware of. Like I didn't know who these personalities were, but what happened and, you know, I think it's really today an interesting point to make. Like we kind of became fans through the media exposure. There was so much of these there there were so many appearances by these idols and they're always reaching out and trying to sort of connect uh, to the audience in such a way that, you know, every day you'd see them once or twice at least on an advertisement or on a TV show. I'd say that's a, that's a conservative estimate, once or twice a day. And so it, it kind of became clear to me that these idols were significant for, like, national discourse, you know. To understand anime is one thing, and not everyone is a fan, you know, but to understand Johnny's and especially SMAP, that was different. That was like everyone knew them. They were the boys. They were the ones who were on TV every night talking about their favorite games and cooking and singing and dancing. Everyone knew Nakai and they knew Kusanagi and they knew Kimura Takia especially. They knew all these names, right? And these people were a part of the family in many ways. So I was surprised by that when I first came over, especially since I was with the host family in the beginning. And the uh, my host mother was a huge fan of Kusanagi specifically because he spoke Korean. At the time, he was trying to learn Korean. And so she, as a Korean-Japanese lady, was, uh, was very impressed with him. And she talked about him all the time and it became part of our conversation. So I think uh, what I was most surprised about was how generalized idol fandom was. Like general viewership, what we think of as fandom, that's, all, that's almost general viewership. Everyone knew more and cared more about the idols than I was expecting. Yeah, that is something that I, I noticed as well. I mean, I never lived in Japan, but I visited many times. And, you know, there's just that, especially as a foreigner, um, I mean, these idols almost become like personal fetish objects. And I don't mean that in like a sexual way necessarily, but they're your personal totems, you know, th because not everyone knows them. You know, you you live in, you know, Montana and it, you have this idol in your phone or, you know, on your computer or um, in the inside cover of your notebook and no one else knows who it is. It's your personal totem and, and very deeply, like these images become very deeply meaningful to you personally as a personal thing. And then you go to Japan or Korea and the pictures are everywhere. And That's right. you're like, oh yeah, G-Dragon. Oh yeah, Kimura. <laughs> like, yeah. It's just a very different 
way of interacting with them. They're public. They're public figures. They're not these personal figures that we we have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 very different, and I think it can be quite shocking. I think as a you go and you see these these images that are have been so personal to you just sort of splashed everywhere. It, it it's it can feel weird. Right, it's kind of like you're sharing your secrets or you're sharing your personal life with everybody. Absolutely, but you know I think we want to remember just how influential they were at the time. Like I remember hearing stories about people on the subway ripping off posters of Kimonotakia and his Kanebo ads, and so like uh, you know he he was is a very attractive man, but I can't imagine you know the well mannered, well kind of disciplined Japanese people ripping off the posters. It must have been something to see. Like people were moved in a very, uh, in a very uh, intense way to follow him and to want to possess part of his image, you know. Absolutely. SMAP, I mean, they were just, they were everywhere. Um, yeah, and I think, I don't think you'll ever see another group that popular or that well-known ever again, just because of the way the media is now. But they were, they really saved Johnny's um, in a lot yes. of ways. Johnny's and Associates has taken on this mythical quality almost. Um, it's there's almost a magic I think contained in that brand name and you know for for some it's like this evil empire that this um I mean did you watch the BBC documentary yes it was quite eye-opening even though you know the stories had been around for a while but seeing them all put together that way was yeah uh, I think that's what changed things I really found it um disturbing and not because of the the content of the you know the descriptions of the um abuse but more just the depiction of johnny's as this evil empire of it was just very strange that whole scene where he goes um the mobine the bbc journalist goes to the johnny's lobby and starts hassling the receptionist and i mean he makes it seem like there may be like children chained in the basement like at this moment it had this very intense QAnon flavor to it this big conspiracy I mean it was very it just felt like like yeah like he was going to fight Darth Vader or something it was yeah yeah. um 
But I mean, that's one side of it. But then the other side is, you know, I saw the pictures of the um, the women outside the building, you know, clustered around, like trying to take pictures of like the like the last day that the Johnny's and Associates sign was like up on the on the building. Like, there's also that flip side to it where Johnny's is this mythical gated you know um pleasure dome where it's it's just all these beautiful boys that just live there forever um you know having these intense relationships with each other and putting out happy pop songs and um yeah like those are the two i think big contrasting images of it but it, it it does have a magic to the name and I, I yeah it's going to be interesting to see what happens when that brand name has just been just so tarnished and just is going to get like memory holds basically right right well it, it was just last month wasn't it that Johnny's changed that was I, I, I keep calling them Johnny's because I think that, that the name needs to be front and center of the discussion we can't forget about it because they, they really want us to you know they're like smile up is our new name right. here we are smile up and it's like I, I don't know like it seems like such a um, because they are Johnny's like that is it's not just a name it's not just a brand I mean that's what they are they're Johnny's um, and if they're not Johnny's, what are they? I think is the question that is going to be in everyone's mind kind of going forward. Because if they're not Johnny's, what are they? Just like regular mm-hmm. idols? Just like, because they're, they're, I mean, that's just what I keep coming back to. There's a magic in that name. And if you take that branding away, they're just some average looking men with fluffy hair. <laughs> fluffy hair that's right that's right well different hair, different yeah. hairstyles some of them spiky some of them fluffy but absolutely absolutely well you know i i i think one of the things that kind of is is important to remember is is how influential johnny was you know johnny kitagawa as this guy who was influencing generations of fans like when you mentioned the women outside of the outside of the corporate headquarters you know mourning in some ways oh, yeah. that that's really important to, to keep in mind that you know he spent decades cultivating this kind of brand and during the 2000s and the 1990s he literally especially the 2000s he literally had the japanese entertainment industry in a chokehold where if you didn't use his idols then you were going to it was going to be a problem, right? And if you introduce someone else, a competitor, onto the same show, I think it was Music Station where uh, De Pump was trying to get their big break. And Johnny apparently said to the producers, look, if you want any of my idols at all, ever, in the future, they're not on the show. And he basically squashed De Pump, you know? So there was all these opportunities for other people to compete but they never were able to break through because of the stranglehold he had the industry under by what one of my contributors calls compounded star power. There was just so much star power in that, you know, in that Jimma show, in that agency. Yeah. In that, that name, wasn't, really. Yeah, in the name. Yeah. It, it, it wasn't something that you could you know, take lightly. Everyone was kind of scared of Johnny in a way. Yeah. But I mean, it's worth remembering, too, and that it wasn't always like that. And I think... Um, yeah, like, again, like, there's this evil empire image that he just sort of popped up and then, I, I, I don't know, just kind of crushed the entertainment industry 
under his fist but i mean it really wasn't until the like till smap um that he did pick like that that the agency did have all that much power um because i mean you just look at someone like go hiromi and go hiromi left the agency because they could not support the level of star that he had become and yeah i mean they had hikaru genji and shonen tai but they weren't they weren't smap um it really was smap that i think that enabled kind of that trickle down effect of well if you want any of these glittering acts you're gonna have to play by our rules right absolutely and that's also the time when people began to step forward so you had this kind of situation where Johnny was taking control of the industry and becoming really influential in the television model where it was basically, you know, advertisements were sold based on the number of eyeballs. The eyeballs were determined by how popular the show was. And so you would have idols on the show, then have idols in the advertisement. And all this would be able to demonstrably increase your viewership and increase your, your ratings for your advertisements and your shows. If you can get 20% with Kimura Takia, then that was 20% that you're going to get for the advertisement. So it was really, um, it was really important. But at the same time, like as early as you know, 96, there was the expose books. There were, you know, there was three of oh, them. They were talking early, about. Yeah, earlier than that, because I, I translated um, Kita Koji from um, the Four Leaves. I mean, his memoir came out in 1988, and it was pretty damning of uh, charges against Johnny Kitagawa. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's kind of like a watershed. When you have those those first two, 88 to 89, those first mm-hmm. two memoirs that sort of begin to discuss what exactly was going on. Because I think before that, you could easily sort of take it to be just a bunch of hogwash. Like I think when, when they first talked about him, and I think it was uh, 65, 67, around that time, when they first started talk about the homosexual, quote unquote, homosexual harassment of Johnny Kitagawa, I think at the time there was kind of like, I think looking back, we can see that that was kind of maybe a a red flag, but the way they discussed it was really, um, you know, sensational and, and uh, very discriminatory towards him that there's this kind of idea that he was somehow this kind of like wolf inside of the, inside of the locker room of these boys and these men. And so the homosexual harassment articles came, you know, decades earlier, but I think they were from tabloids it was easy to describe them as, you know, hit pieces on Johnny, who's this person who kept his image so under wraps that he would never really appeared in the media. Like, I think it's hard to understand how powerful you have to be to have no image in the media. Like, that's, I think now we take it for granted that everyone is exposed all the time. But he was, you know, so powerful that he wasn't exposed at all. And when people were talking about him, you could easily wave it away as kind of like, well, that's just more talk. Yeah, or even um, conspiracy theories, because there, were, I mean, there were plenty of those too. That he's a CIA plant. Um, there, I mean, I think there's conspiracies that are like, oh, he's funded by like the Korean Unification Church. I mean, you can find any kind of conspiracy tied back to Johnny Kitagawa. Yeah, and and I think, yeah, you're right. Like, when it's just coming from the tabloids, it's it's easy to say, well, that's just another one of these, yeah, like the hit pieces on him. 
But I think, yeah, when somebody like a, an ex-idol like Kito Koji comes out and says, well, actually, here's the whole story of how he groomed me as a 16-year-old runaway, um, mm-hmm. that it's, yeah, it's, a, it's very different. And that second book, um, I don't know if you've read it, but it's intense. I mean, it's just, you know, he, he just basically reprints all of these stories that people had sent him after he wrote the first book. And it is grim. It is very grim reading. Well, I think that's what's kind of so, so shocking to people. Like, you know, when you talk about this kind of like uh, treating Johnny's like a cult or like this organization that has children in chains. I think one of the reasons why we can say that is because, you know, up until the BBC documentary, there wasn't a lot of, you know, it was given short thrift. There wasn't a whole lot of people who were giving it the attention it needed. Johnny passed away. We have the BBC documentary. There was less. Uh, there was less kind of pressure being built up by the TV model, where Johnny had a lot of power. So that kind of disintegration allowed a lot of statements to be made. But I think the numbers are significant. When last I checked, 478 people say that they were just generally say that they were victims of him. 225 have actually sought compensation from him. Right. These numbers are just it's huge. Even within the company itself, 150 people at least have said that they were abused by him. The numbers are just it it can't be like when you reach that level of exposure, it can't be so simple as, okay, well, you know, one guy was running amok or or whatever. Right. Suddenly it looks like a a conspiracy theory because we can't believe that someone got away with that much for so long. Yeah, it really is the equivalent of a, um, yeah, like the Jimmy Savile or the Larry Nasser stories, both of which have come out um, in like English language press. And I think in both cases, the, like, the, the more you looked into it, there were people that knew but covered up um, or just didn't at the time, you know, did not delve further. There, it, it really was these kind of open secrets. Um, and any of the kids that tried to say something were were dismissed um, because it would have just brought down the whole organization um, to have to have dealt with it at the time. I mean, people were covering their own asses. You know, if you start pulling at a thread of like, well, this kid says blah blah blah, then yeah, like the whole the whole organization is going to come crashing down. As people's mm-hmm. careers, you know, that's a that's a powerful motivator, is is people protecting their own careers. Right, absolutely. And I think some people compare it to like Jimmy Savile, as you said, or um, you know Michael Jackson, that kind of stuff. But I think it's it's even more, you know, it's even deeper rooted than that. I think because it was a structure of power that allowed for silence to continue among people who weren't even involved in the abuses, but they were then involved through facilitating his continued power to allow that abuse. So in some ways that sounds like to me, and I hate to say it, the Catholic Church. So it, it sounds like, you know, a system systemic abuse that was allowed for generations, years, you know, under this guy's watch. And he was sort of supposed to be this, you know, funny grandpa guy who just cared about kids and he loved idols and, you know, he sort of spoke in half Japanese, half English, this funny kind of, you know, I, uh, producer guy. But then you sort of, I think now more recently, the image has sort of shifted 100% into this, you know, you know 100 
and 80% in this other alternative image of him as, well, he was grooming, he was abusing, he was powerful, he was cunning, he was conniving, all that stuff. And I think what's, what's hard to do is to keep both images in mind at the same time. You know, like I think that the, the worst thing we can do is try to erase the way that we supported Johnny's and the idols more generally, you know, because I think what Guinness Bro, uh, Book of World Records did, for example, that to me just seems so disingenuous. You give the guy the award for, I think it was the most number one hits produced in between 74 and 2010, something like that. And so you, you sort of recognize his power as a producer to influence the entire industry. And then when all this stuff comes out, you're like, forget it, the record is gone. It's like, well, no, the record isn't gone, right? I think we need to look at that with a straight face and say, well, wait a minute, that record was there for a reason. And you can't just erase it. Yeah, no, no, I agree completely. And, and I think that's also important to hold both those images in your mind, too, because I think the truth is complicated. And I mean, I've, because um, as a, a fan of Johnny's uh, for many years, I, I think there, there are genuinely idols in that company that, um, that loved that loved him. Um, and you can say that they were groomed into doing so or whatever, but that doesn't change their, their feelings. And, um, I'm reminded of, uh, Corey Feldman. I I don't, I don't know how much you know about Corey Feldman, but (laughs) not being a woman of a certain age, but, um, you know, he has always spoken with a lot of fondness about Michael Jackson. And I, and I think, Macaulay Culkin as well and you know there are these I guess you know like these young child friends of Michael Jackson's that he according to them and I have no reason to disbelieve them he never touched them but he you know showered them with love he was the father figure they never had and I think it there is something similar with um Johnny that I'm sure that there were these young boys that he never touched um but he, you know, he groomed them in other ways, but that doesn't change how they feel about him. And I think that, um, some of the reactions from some of the talents, and I'm thinking of, um, specifically the Kinky Kids, uh, Domoto Koichi and Domoto Suyoshi, um, who have had these kind of complicated responses to the, to all of this coming out. And I, I think it's probably something similar where, I think they, they, you know, they may have genuinely loved him and it's, it, it can be complicated to, to shift the image of someone that was always very kind to you, um, and reconcile it with this monster lurking in, in, inside. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think that's, that, that's kind of where it gets really difficult to sort of look at this legacy and say this guy influenced Japanese popular culture in a singular way, a really significant figure. And he's really important to a lot of people individually and, you know, to the fans, to the producers, to the music, the composers, everyone, of course, the idols themselves. He made careers, you know, he made entire generations of, of content that we all sort of grew up with in a way. And I think that's kind of what makes it hard to sort of take this 
you know, revelation. I think for some of us, it turned, it was more of a revelation, especially if you weren't following closely the Japanese side. You know, there was, again, as, as both you and I mentioned, there were lots of really damning indictments coming from early on. But if you weren't following those, you might just think that Johnny's is the Japanese version of, you know, Korean idols or something like that. And if you weren't aware of what was happening or the potential of what was happening, then I think it was this sort of surprising, you know, and deeply wounding. And then what you do with that is you, I think, begin to process that through, you know, denial, anger, all the things we're seeing. Yeah, all the, the stages of grief. Um, because, it, I mean, it is. For many people, being a Johnny's fan was a very important part of their their lives. Um, and, you know, you would see the, the women going through these generations of, you know, they would start off as fans of one group and then move to another younger group when the older group disbanded or became less active. I mean, I, I had a lot of uh, friends who are really big fans of Arashi and yeah. um, the grief when Arashi went on hiatus was real and um, yeah many of them have moved to be fans of some of the younger groups uh, Naniwa Denshi or Stones or Snowman and um, yeah this has been it has been tricky to navigate supporting supporting the talents who especially these younger ones may not have really even known Johnny um, or have had anything to do with covering up anything. You know, they were kids um, mm -hmm. when he was around. Um, and yeah, and reconciling that with with this new image of Johnny Kitagawa as this monster. I mean, how do you how do you handle that? It's uh, a lot of a lot of tricky navigating of um, of just emotion and and I guess just justifying things to yourself. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, my, my uh, buddy who was part of the uh, uh, Idols and Celebrity and Japanese Media Culture, Igor Prusa, just recently posted about this. He was talking about how you deal with these connections and so on. And he was pointing out in the, um, the apology, the official apology given by his sister and by the new president, the former idol himself, uh, in, during that press conference, there was two strategies that were kind of in invoked. One of them was the you know the Shazai strategy, 
So you apologize and you, you take responsibility for it. There's tears and things like that. But at the same time, they did what he calls the uh, Mamori strategy, so the defensive strategy, whereas the defensive strategy is more like, well, what we never knew. And if we, even if we did knew, uh, know, it wasn't uh, to this extent. And, you know, now that we know we're, we're, we're going to act on it, but some of these accusations are obviously false. That's much more the kind of like defensive strategy. And so I think that the fact that we have both of those together, you know, mostly most of the time when you see a Japanese celebrity apologize, as Igor points out, most of the time what you have is the, the full-on apology, the tears, the bowing, all of that. Whereas they're still allowing themselves to use the defensive strategy, and the defensive strategy is something you see more of the politicians. So it's interesting to sort of see how they're not actually, you know, even in that sort of official, really well-publicized event, they weren't 100% taking responsibility for what happened in the way you would expect for a celebrity scandal, because it was, again, more than just a celebrity scandal, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's an institutional scandal. Um, and maybe maybe that's why we're seeing kind of this I I think is sort of an overcompensation of well we're never we're never gonna hire anyone from the agency ever again even if they've left um, or yeah like a flat-out banning of all these acts or just a, a erasing of, of Johnny's name everywhere it does feel very much like overcompensation for for not acting for all of those years Right, exactly. And that's what really burns my biscuits. It sort of ends up being this kind of easy target where now we all know, quote unquote, we're, we're sort of in the space where we're all in knowing. Now we can say, okay, look, this guy is terrible. Let's crusade against him. Let's get rid of all these people. And the idols and the fans suffer for that. You know, often victims themselves will suffer for that. And I think that's, you know, it's really easy to say all of it is bad and just paint with those, you know, those, those big brush strokes. But when you do that, you know, the collateral damage is huge because again, it wasn't just one man. It was an institution that was involved in these, these uh, cover-ups and even beyond the institution, all the people who were buying advertisement space on Johnny's TV shows, all the people that were putting them into dramas, all the people who were putting their music into music videos and all that stuff. Everybody kind of was part of the media machine that was producing Johnny's content. You know, Gabrielle Lukacs, this wonderful scholar who does TV in Japan, she's pointed out that, you know, that it was a defensive strategy in many ways where you had people who were aware that the Japanese TV industry was losing, would lose to foreign content if it didn't shore up its borders and begin to produce content that would get eyeballs, domestic eyeballs onto the TV. And the way they did that, she points out, is through inside baseball. So basically doing idols and talents who would be on TV and everyone knew about them. So the more you know about them, the more you care about them, the more you care about them, the more you tune in to see what they're up to. So she points out that the rise and fall of Johnny's and also uh, of snap, especially, and, um, their trendy dramas more specifically was really part of a strategy by Japanese content producers who saw that there was, um, who saw that they needed to shore up the borders of Japan if they were not, if they were going to uh, maintain any kind of semblance of power. Mm. Well, and here's a question too. I mean, in 2023, I think I'm wondering if 
you know, I mean, it, it was in the BBC documentary as well, but the fact that, um, you know, the sexual abuse between two men wasn't even technically illegal until I think 2017, something like that. That's I right. mean, is it possible that just cultural ideas about protecting, especially young men, um, they just weren't like it wasn't seen as quite a big deal 20, 30 years ago as it, as it is today? I think you're right. I think the fact that we, we, we didn't really have as a crime uh, attacks between men, like that wasn't considered rape. Like the definition had to be changed to make that possible. And when that legal definition uh, changed in Japan, then suddenly we get more weight being given to what happened. And I think it was, uh, when was it? It was, I think, the early, 2000, the early 1990s, 2000s version. Oh, that's right. So it was the Bunshu, uh, uh, Shukan Bunshu right. uh, exposés. When those were translated into English, they used the word rape in, in the translations of, of the alleged crimes which now we know to be uh, know to be true, and I think that turned a lot of people overseas. Like they were like, "What is going on here? What's happening?" And I think, if I remember correctly, that was taken up in the Diet, uh, where because it was like, "Well, what's going on with all of this? You know, discussion of rape happening between boys." So it could be that you know part of the structural change that happened was because we had so much talk about a crime that wasn't considered a crime at the time, right? Or at least not legally. Um, and because the other reason I was kind of thinking things over is um, I'm wondering just what, you know, because it is young men, um, if our the way that we respond to to this sort of sexual abuse of young men is different from the sexual abuse of young women, um, because there are these figures um, in the female idol world, and I'm thinking of somebody like Akimoto, of um, the Nyanko Club and then AKB48, who also there, I mean, there are allegations that have tailed him and um, some of his business partners, um, what was it, uh, Kuboto was caught um, with young idols um, from AKB uh, back in back in the day, although he's left the company now, I believe. And yet there, you know, he's still producing groups and still operating. I mean, are we going to have to wait for him to pass away for the BBC to do a documentary? I mean, is is there a difference, do you think, in the way that we respond to these crimes um, against young men versus young women, um, especially in the idol world? Yeah, I think there definitely is a difference. When you look at sort of the way people talked about it, even in the early days, despite having these really, you know, um, damning and really um, detailed confessionals about what exactly happened behind closed doors at Johnny's. There were photos too. There, I mean, there were photo leaks too. Yeah. You could still sort of look the other way, you know, whereas I think that that sort of shows that it wasn't being taken seriously enough, despite the fact that, you know, let's not forget that Johnny's idols typically begin as Johnny's juniors. So they are actually in a, a space where they are vulnerable children to begin with, right? And then they grow up into, if they're lucky, they get into groups, right? And they get into groups and they become famous again if they're lucky. So it's a real, it's a real sort of like difficult environment in which to thrive. And it was sort of known, apparently, uh, people have said again and again, that if Johnny showed you favor, 
then there was a chance that you would be getting into this group and you'd have your big break, you'd have your debut. So there's this kind of like way in which even if, you know, it might have been, um, even if someone might have quote unquote consented to what happened, they didn't really consent. It was what Takeyama Akiko calls involuntary consent. The power structures are encouraging you to make a decision and you'd make that decision, but it wasn't really yours to begin with, right? I mean, it was very much uh, a kind of pressured well, yeah, decision. Well, especially if, if you're a, a, young, a young person, exactly. you know, a young teenager, 12, exactly. 13, 14. Yeah, yeah. And so I think with the female idols, there's more, I think there's more superficial concern. Like people say, okay, look, maybe there's like, you know, this happening behind closed doors and all of this stuff. And look, that producer married an idol that was in his group. Isn't that kind of weird? Isn't that kind of creepy? Like there's, there's talk like that, but in terms of holding someone accountable, very rarely, you know, and I think that shows in some ways that we still have a long way to go with in the way in which if we're going to hold one producer accountable, we might want to hold other producers accountable as well, because we're talking about something that happens for men and women, it happens young and older. We see this abuse occurring, right? And so I think now we're seeing the floodgates open and we're seeing more and more people coming out saying, you know, it already happened in some ways with the women. The Me Too movement in Japan was successful in many ways of drawing attention to this, but then it got drowned out, you know? So I think that the, the female side of things is, it leaves me with less hope for change because it seems like people suspect, yet they never act on it, right? And Akimoto is, one, is a really good example a famous songwriter, a famous producer. He's meeting with the prime minister. He's a very powerful guy, right? He's, he's producing the music for the Olympics and so on and so forth. And, you know, people have talked about his relationships with idols and his relationships with people who abuse idols and all of this for some time, you know. But somehow, so far, he's pretty much untouchable. And just like, you know, Johnny, he's sort of puts himself into the background. Even those documentary films, which you know, they're not really documentaries, they're promotional pieces. But even in those promotional pieces, you can sort of see him sliding into the background, not really showing his face. He just is a disembodied voice t encouraging the girls to do their own thing, you know? So he's really good at, at erasing himself, right? And I think that erasure allows for a lot of, uh, a lot of, it allows people to continue to act with ignorance. Yeah, yeah. Because if you can't see him, then you kind of forget he's there in a way, unless you're the kind of person that he's looking to meet with an influence. But it's, you know, I think part of it too is there, you know, you there are these very young, these, I mean, maybe this is just as I've gotten older, <laughs> much like Matthew McConaughey and Days and Confused, the idols keep staying the same age. And, you know, they're these very young um, the girls, you know, 14, 13, 14, 15, and to see them put in these very adult situations, um, it's, yeah, it's, he's singing about don't, oh, what's that, uh, there was that one infamous song, like, don't take my sailor yeah, suit don't, off. Yeah, don't take my sailor suit off, yeah. yeah. <laughs>
middle school uniform. I mean, it's, you know, um, it's titillating, but uh, yeah, I mean, there's definitely a sense of, of transgression there that may not be uh, all that appropriate in, in child safeguarding terms, but I mean, again, I guess it's just that that was the time. Um, but so, I mean, maybe this is like a pivot, but one of the things that I think um, foreign fans may not be all that familiar with is, I mean, there are these ties. I mean, the idol industry is, it is adjacent to like the sex industry in, in some ways. And, um, you know, you, there are the stories of the, the AKB girls, um, going into JAV, former Johnnies end up as hosts. Um, there is kind of a permeable border there. Um, and I don't know, I mean, I, I find it hard to believe that anything will really be done about kind of sexual abuse of idols as long as there is this or these ties, I guess, or this permeable border to the legal or legal or illegal sex industry. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've had any uh, done any research into to that area. Yeah, yeah. So I think there's a lot to say about the way in which the, so you have normalized sex industry in Japan. It's of course officially illegal, but when you think about what actually is illegal, it's like. Vaginal penetration, basically, that's the definition of of sex work, really. And then beyond that, you can negotiate, especially behind closed doors, you can negotiate uh, for your services in many ways. So it's it's a kind of interesting case where you can sort of see that the entertainment industry and the uh, sort of sex work industry are, you know, they're side by side. And they're both kind of like sharing talents. You know, there'd be people who used to be in the sex work industry coming over into uh, celebrity. And there'd be celebrities going into sex work as well, right? So I think it's it's very much um, a situation where you don't have as much resistance to it. You know, when I was doing field work for um, a piece I did in Convergence, Media Convergence in Japan, I was working with people who were sort of trying to work their way up from being uh, sort of an underground or a small idol into the mainstream. And a lot of these idols were uh, were working really hard to make themselves seen and known to, you know, potential sponsors, potential patrons, potential whales who would be giving them lots of money. They were trying to make themselves visible through, you know, working as maids in maid cafes or doing karaoke on their own and then putting up videos and things like that. And uh, it turns out that some of the stuff that they were doing was also connected to sex work, which wasn't, you know, it was kind of like a known thing that if you're, if you're coming up that way, you might be involved in this as another route to develop those relationships and develop those um connections that would help you to become big you know so uh yeah absolutely i think it's it's not it's uh it's not as distant as you might think you know right and i I think there is an element too of because it isn't normalized to an extent i think there are probably yeah these whales the patrons um which is another element of, of idol life i think foreigners are not all that familiar with but um, 
you know, that if you assume everyone has a price, everyone's for sale, uh, it's, it can be hard, I think, to kind of, yeah, like this sort of involuntary consent. Are you really consenting? You know, if you're 15 and going on a paid date with a potential patron, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's, um, that is a, the question that I guess, um, I mean, I, I know what I would answer, but that's not necessarily what everyone would answer. Because I'm I, um, a fan of uh, Takarazuka, who is also having a moment at the, at right now um, with a bullying scandal. But, um, I mean, there, there's patrons um, of the Takarajens. Um, yeah, it's these behind-the-scenes relationships um, where the talent is trading in, I mean, their body, essentially. Um, they can be very, uh, very tricky, I think, to navigate for, for these young people. And again, this is kind of where I think we, we want to sort of see the connections with other places as well. Because this isn't just a Japan thing. Any place where I think you have people who are aiming for the spotlight, they're aiming for, 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 uh, for, for fame and fortune, that kind of thing, doing it through self-exposure, doing it through, um, you know, can making the connections, getting your followers up, all that stuff. There's potential for things to go wrong, especially when you're situated in a power structure. And the case of Japan just tells us that the power structure can be really, really uh, integrated, you know, into a system that allows for um, certain talents to become super famous, whereas other people are sort of pushed off the board so that kind of absolute power that comes with the Jimisho agency system was part of what made possible all the stuff we're talking about. You know, when you have someone under that kind of vertical control, then, you know, it's ripe for abuse, especially when there's no oversight, you know? Right, right. The one person who complains, well, there's 10 other people waiting to take that spot. You're, I mean, the, the idols are disposable to an extent until you get up to that Kimura Takia level. But yeah, there's only one of him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I mean, and, and also t- it leads to things like the, um, did, have you been following the Takurazuka scandal at all? No, tell me about it. I'm, I'm very interested. Uh, well, there was, um, it's, it's really sad, actually. There was a young actress, um, from Sorogumi, I think, but she committed suicide and it came out um, that she had been really severely bullied um, by kind of the fellow, her fellow uh, Takarajens. And all of this is just kind of exploding and it's in some places I've seen it linked to the Johnny's scandal. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's just kind of one of these things. Like there's been um stoppages of uh performances and it's yeah i don't know if it's going to lead to like a big purge and reckoning in the takarazuka theater but yeah i mean some of the stories are pretty like a burns with a curling iron and it's not it's not pretty but i think it's also that same kind of top-down hierarchy that allows it because i mean takarazuka for all that i think it's been interpreted in the west as this like you know gender queer progressive blah 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 no it's actually a very conservative 
um, conservative organization, very conservative um, theater tradition. And yeah, it has, it does have a very strict hierarchy where, you know, the top star is the top and the, um, the upper, like the upper, uh, level actresses are above the lower level actresses who are above Mm -hmm. the juniors. I mean, it's a very top down organization, but yeah, the, some pretty horrific bullying apparently, and not the first scandal of bullying scandal to come out of Takarazuka either by any means. Right. I would be almost surprised if it didn't happen. And I think this is the, the sort of thing that this, the quiet part that we haven't been saying, like it, 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 I would be surprised if it didn't happen when you have this kind of a structure that encourages uh, seniority and disciplining your, 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 your subordinates in a way that allows you to basically do anything you want. I often show students this documentary, Dream Girls. You know, it's a wonderful documentary, pretty short. But in that documentary, what, what they always point out to me, like that what always surprises them, is the military discipline that the girls go through. And this kind of way that when the when they're co- when they're sent by come into the room, they're like, you know, why was I must? Why was I must? Why was I must? Why was I must? They're, they're just like kind of like freaking out to show how much that they respect their their upperclassmen, you know. And I think that that sort of shows us that there's an awful lot of room there for uh, people to get bullied, you know, because when you have someone with absolute power over someone else, and that person has no way to really search for another outlet to you know reprimand the person who's bullying them then it just goes on it becomes endemic you know yeah where the the bullied flips it around like well if i had to go through this so does the next generation i mean that's the that's the cycle of cycle of bullying i think in those kinds of institutions i mean i think it's um yeah like the british boarding schools are notorious for this as well Yeah, it's 
pretty far removed from our images of, of the uh, shiny happy people on stage just loving each other and, and just getting along. It's um, behind the scenes it can be pretty grim. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, as as foreign fans, I, th- I think because so much of what we consume is either self-selected or selected for us by the, the translators and the gatekeepers, um, I think it can be hard to get a full picture of what it is you're actually consuming. I think it can be easy to ignore the things that aren't translated, to ignore the stuff that's not being fed to you by your, you know, the translator or the gatekeeper or um, whatever source it is that you're choosing to consume. And yeah, I, I think sometimes we get these wrong ideas of what, what these products are and we interact with them in ways that are not always, I don't know, truthful or helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's it's hard because I I have found very little critical writing on idols or not even critical, but realistic or or grounded in some sort of reality. Like the just the reality of what it is, this product. I mean Right. I, yeah, I mean right. I, your writing is great, but <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, present the com- yeah, present company excluded, obviously, but um, yeah, and, and especially I've found, and I don't know how much of this you've encountered, um, you know, doing literature reading or stuff, but I found that the K-pop phenomenon has really been unhelpful, um, especially yeah. the last like five years or so um, with BTS, because it's brought in a lot of academics from outside of idol studies or these kind of mm, like Asian Asian culture studies um, where they have the language grounding, the culture grounding um, and it's led to a lot of fanciful a lot of fanciful papers um, I won't I won't make you go on the record <laughs> about it but um, yeah I, I just found that the um, yeah the k-pop studies I think has been an unhelpful addition to understanding idols. Well, it does kind of contribute to the the sort of way in which you um, you become an almost um, cheerleader for your idol or for your industry, mm. and you know that happened in the early '90s, early 2000s, the late '90s, early 2000s in Japan as well, where people were talking about SMAP and the new masculinity and how you know Johnny's was changing everything and. It was appealing to women. This was a women-driven change in the mainstream media. Like, there's all these things that were happening that sort of made us fans, you know, I think, of of SMAP, even academic fans of SMAP. And when you get to K-pop, I think because it's a newer field, it's easier to get sort of wrapped up in this stuff and just be like, this is so great. Look, they're talking about mental health. Look, they're talking about... Uh, you know, sexism. Look, they're talking about genderqueer individuals. They're talking about all this stuff. And that kind of makes it possible for uh, a sort of wholesale celebration. Whereas, you know, the thing that I want to sort of keep, keep hitting on is there's that kind of underlying power structure that enables and disables individuals. You know, so you have this kind of way of Jimusho agencies in Korea as well producing people who are so uh, exposed and so uh, 
overworked and so driven to the wall that they're committing suicide, you know? So it's, it's not all pink champagne and roses. Right, yeah. And I mean, um, Akimoto, who we mentioned earlier, uh, is quite friendly with the head of HYBE, uh, Bangshi Hyuk. So, I mean, <laughs> these these uh, agencies are not unknown to each other, um, even across the uh, Sea of Japan slash East Sea. But um, yeah, that's a really good point, though, about the SMAP masculinity studies. I'd forgotten all about that, but I've certainly encountered those types of papers as well. And um, it is kind of funny looking back to see this, um, yeah, the celebration of like the feminine and masculine and tied together and kimura and um that's right yeah yeah, yeah. No, i remember those and yeah there is definitely an echo of that um in kind of these papers on like the you know the, the flower boys of um korea as well but it it is kind of funny when you when you contrast that with like kind of the lived reality of um being in being in those countries and yeah there's the, the I, I didn't see too many flower boys on the streets when um <laughs> when i visited tokyo or seoul mm-hmm. and then you also have at the same time these horrible you know these heartbreaking stories about people who are in that structure where you're you're sort of demanded to be a flower boy or you know a ge- geisha guy you're encouraged to do that. And, the, and instead of doing that, you're like, I don't want to be this. So I'm going to work myself. Like Katori Shingo comes to mind mm-hmm. where he, he works out like a madman to make himself unappealing to the people who would abuse him, you know? And it's like, once you know where his, where his mind was at that time, you're like, Oh, okay. Uh, I mean, there's, there, there's a lot here to beyond just, he's a macho guy compared to, his more feminine contemporaries is more kind of like looking at this in terms of what encouraged or discouraged his performance, you know? Yeah. Well, he's an interesting idol. I I mean, I, when I was in Japan um, in December uh, last year, I got to go to his um, art exhibit. Who am I? Have you visited it? I have not. Oh, it's incredible, but it's, it was, it was, it was difficult, I have to say. Um, I mean, I'm not a particular SMAP fan. I like SMAP. I've, you know, I, of course, I've followed Shingo for um, years just by kind of osmosis. Um, but, I mean, it was, some of the pieces were quite dark and quite um, uh, revealing of just um, just a, a very poor mental health state. Um, you know, just these kind of primal screams just on canvas or on um oh gosh there was some just even on cardboard where it looked like he'd just come home and just vomited all his feelings of despair um in spray paint on this cardboard and you know you can look at the dates that they were created and line them up to what was happening um or at least what you know what we knew what was happening um, just in sort of the career of SMAP and yeah, it's, it was quite, it was quite powerful, um, especially as an idol fan. Um, and it was interesting too, to go through it with all of the, the, you know, the Japanese ladies, I was the only foreigner, um, at least when I went through, but, um, and just kind of, you know, overhear little snippets of conversation and yeah, it was, it was, yeah, it was 
it was interesting. It was quite powerful. Um, and then, of course, you get to the end, and there's all the goods. And I was like, <laughs> right, <laughs> or you can't can't skip the goods. You can't skip the goods lines. And I was like, well, I don't know if I really want, um, you know, tokens of of his epic depression, um, you know, little cell phone charms or whatever of epic depression, but. You know, kudos, kudos to to Shingo for making it through, and he just got married, and you know, he seems yes. like he's doing pretty well. I have to say, he made it through. And I think it's so great what you do as well, just like that story that you just told, but also on your on your podcast. I think what's really great about this is you're sort of giving voice back to some of these idols who don't have a chance to be heard in in English. Their stories aren't well known. So when you have someone like Katori Shingo, who's, you know, coming out and living his best life and talking about what happened to him through his art, through his, you know, his stories. I think that really is a great chance to sort of, you know, flip the script a little bit, because I think too often we think of idols as kind of, you know, they're produced, they're objects, and those objects tend to be silent, you know. They sing when they're supposed to sing, they dance when they're supposed to dance, they do this and they do that based on external pressures, but you know, there's a, there's a living human person in there. And so the more we can listen to that person and those people and hear from them, the, the less I think we're, we'll be a part of that objectification. Like I said um, at the beginning of the episode, I, I really like that you kind of hammer in on this um, this idea of the the idol as a fiction, um, but you know, but yeah, with the real person behind it. But I, I think it's easy to get hung up on that that fiction, um, and not to keep using BTS as an example, but they're kind of very prominent right now. But there was just a um, like a you know a biography. Uh, or alleged autobiography of theirs uh, released. But, um, you know, by the time it gets to the fans, you know, here in America, this is something that it's gone through, um, you know, it was written by a journalist hired by the agency, right? And then, um, so that's already one layer of mediation, but then translated by... A translator again working for the agency there's two layers of mediation um and so by the time that the reader in english gets it it's gone through i mean are, are these really the words of the the idol themselves or is this just mm-hmm. another part of the is this another image is this another part of the story that we're we're another part of the kayfabe that we're being sold mm-hmm. 
one of the things I've talked about on my podcast um, is the importance of all of these behind the scenes documentaries, right? And the way that those also craft a narrative for us to consume, um, whether it's the, you know, the narrative of the self-produced idol and, you know, here, here's all the idols in the recording studio. I mean, there's just, there's so many of these, um, you know, every idol, every group has their, here we are in the studio behind the scenes and here's the producer and here, I you know, here's the idol as the producer. Um, and I think it's easy to forget that this is also served to us. You know, this is also a part of the promotion. This is also like those behind the scenes, those aren't, it's not like the, you know, a, a it's not an objective just camera stuck backstage I mean this is also a narrative crafted to sell to you that it's not just what's on stage it's also backstage too that's also part of the narrative yeah for sure for sure and I think I I I understand and respect that whole point you're making about how a lot of voices come between you and hearing the voice of that idol so you have translation work going in there and so on and so forth but I think I want to just put a little caveat on that and say there's also potential for it to be opened up, you know, in a new way. Because I don't think, you know, with, with Johnny's, I think honestly, if 100%, be honest, I think probably he would have gotten away with it unless it was for foreign media coming in and telling, like, they, there's something to be said about how wild, you know, that documentary was. But let's put that aside and say the fact that they – made that strong statement then empowered people like Okamoto to come forward. Now, where did Okamoto come forward? Well, at places like the Foreign Correspondents Club of Japan, right? Mm. So they, they allowed him to speak his truth in a, a long form. They wrote all these stories in English to sort of support his you know, truth-telling. I think if that hadn't have happened, it probably would be that Johnny is allowed, people always would know about it, right. but they wouldn't ever say anything about it you know if that makes sense no that makes sense it's it is um yeah it 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 allowed these outlets in japan to say the bbc said versus having to put forward that we did this reporting or we talked to blah 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 they can say the bbc reported that and i think that makes that does make a huge difference which yeah, yeah. If you're concerned with, um, I mean, I guess things like libel laws or um, also the image of Japan abroad. Um, yeah, that that could be a very compelling, compelling way to kind of dig into this scandal is sort of that roundabout. Well, the BBC says blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think we also end up with a lot of the, you know, people who we think are major performers or we think are really important impressive performers in japan they're often i think you know the way they're talked about in their home country and the way they're talked about overseas can be quite different you know and i think akb 40 is a good example of this you brought up sort of akimoto you brought up akimoto and sort of some of his uh, devious uh, actions and, and discussions of those but you know i think what he's been really successful doing is trying to convince people, especially people overseas, that um, AKB48 is a national idol group. 
that everyone knows them, everyone loves them. And what I always say about that is that's a prescriptive, not a descriptive, mm. you know, statement. He's trying to get you to understand them in a particular way because he wants them to be advertised and 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 you know put up on a pedestal that way, right? Whereas if you talk to people in Japan, they'd be like, "Well, I'm not a huge fan myself. I don't know anyone who's a fan. I don't like them." And it turns out that actually it's their core fan base who buys all the CDs and pushes up their ranking, and you know the stuff we're more familiar with now, where the fan movement pushes forward this group and makes them. Uh, successful domestically, e- at least economically, and then that becomes kind of like the, the the springboard to make statements about culturally, politically, socially, how important they are. Whereas, you know, I've had informants tell me straight to my face to sort of go back to your point about uh, the connection between sex work and, and entertainment. I've had informants tell me that they they hate Akimoto, and I asked them why. Like, why why do you have such you know vehement feelings towards this man they said he did something he never should have done he made idols accessible for for money which sounds like prostitution this is the words of my informant it sounds like prostitution right and i think that that kind of a statement tells us that there's lots of people who don't buy into their you know they were called gyaku host clubs they were called reverse host clubs by some comedians. So AKB48 has a lot of detractors domestically, and they're trying to shore that up to make themselves appear to be national idols internationally, right? That hasn't worked for them. But, you know, the same thing happens with any idol group, right? Where they're trying to sort of take advantage of the overseas gap in understanding. And it works. And one of the reasons that I think it does work so well um, is that because, like, Idols are just, they're not, like, it's not a serious topic, like, in, in the West or in English language media. People don't, like, the, the, these outlets, they don't care. The BBC doesn't care. They, I mean, they care about ratings, sure, but, you know, like, these, there's no one fact-checking. There's no one, you know, they'll, they'll, they can take a look at metrics and say, oh, sure, okay, so they sold X amount of, of CDs. Okay, yeah, sure. They're, you know they're popular. Um, and so it does come down to these, a lot of times fan journalists and, and, you know, like you were saying, these people that are writing these like, Oh, the new feminine masculinity of SMAP types of articles that, that does become the face of the idol group or the, the company in English language media, because there's that, that, that is who is reporting. It is these enthusiasts, these fans, um, and they have a particular agenda to sell, whether it's their own expertise, um, whether it's their own, um, the, just their own, like, just fervent belief in the message of, of the idol, whether it's mental health or, or yeah, feminine masculinity or whatever. Um, and there's no objective voice saying, well, actually, it's only like 200 <laughs> hardcore fans. <laughs> buying all these thousands of records buying. and then leaving That's them right. in boxes up in the mountains. <laughs> That's right. Did they, they get picked up? There's this really amazing story about that. There, This guy got picked up uh, for violation of the trash, of the, uh, he was throwing away too much trash. And they were CDs, right? Yeah. And so he got in trouble, not not because he was, you know, kind of devious or something, but because he threw away too many CDs. <laughs> 
So you, there's definitely a lot of people who are buying mountains and mountains yeah. of content. Like in Akihabara, where I do my field work, it's like clockwork. When a new single comes out, if you just wait for 24 hours, it's like 50 cents in the in the bargain booth the next day because oh, people just are just pick it up on the street. Or yeah, right. yeah. I I translated an article about this actually. Um, I, I can link it in my show notes. But yeah, it was the it was something like what what does happen to all these bulk bots? CDs and they the uh, the reporter talked to like pe- like fans and some of them were like well my system is I put fifty only fifty in the trash at a time um, there are some recycling places that'll take just the cases and um, others are like well I've tried giving them out to all my friends but they don't want to take right. anymore <laughs> that's right that's right. You're proselytizing. You're out there just giving your CDs away. It is. It is. It's proselytizing because I think there is kind of that um, for for some fans. And I mean, and I've certainly felt this myself, but there is like you do want to spread the good news about your favorite group. I mean, there is that element of proselytization to it. Of course, the person most susceptible is going to be another idol fan. But um, yeah, I think if you have the bug, you have the bug or you have the gene. The fan gene. <laughs> But that's why I I feel a responsibility um, just as an older fan who's been around a while. Um, I mean, one of the whole reasons I wanted to do this podcast was just to kind of help help close that foreign gap, because I do think we get a distorted picture of um, what it's like in Japan. And one of the other things I really enjoyed, because I heard an interview with you on Japan Station, I think it was the podcast. I can link that in the show notes as well. But um, it was just kind of a little offhand comment, but you know, just about that weird Japan framing. And I still think that weird Japan framing is pretty pervasive. And it really, really, I, I just find it very annoying when I encounter these, you know, isn't Japan so wacky articles. It's kind of hard to believe that even today, you know, it, it's still, it's weird Japan is still a thing. Oh yeah, I mean it's happening right now. There was that that game that's coming out, I think Baldur's Gate, coming out in Japan, and they decided to edit or censor a particular aspect of it. And you know, I won't go into any details that I want to uh, give it away. But basically, 
Japan decided that uh, a scene was too adult to be brought into uh, Japan without censorship. And then all the comments are, as you would expect, they're all like, how dare you, Japan, editing this? You're just editing because they're not minors, or you're just editing it because, you know, blah, 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 blah. And there's it's all this kind of like really racist vitriol coming out in the comments about this story. And it's just, it just happens all the time. You know, you have this kind of framing of Japan as this weird, exotic, erotic other, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I'm um, friendly with a few journalists and I was talking um, to one um, and he was saying that, you know, he had put together um, like a really compelling um, story that he wanted to sell to, you know, any outlet about um, the lives of kind of these women who end up in um, like soap lands. You know, sing a lot of them are single mothers and this is the only work they can get and um just no one no one cared it like you couldn't it, he couldn't sell it but you know an article on like you know here's my experience at a maid cafe you know that sure um <laughs> and, you know and it's it's kind of like a, an almost it, it's just like this bubble like people want to read the weird japan so that's all that gets produced but you know, maybe maybe we would like to see another side. You know, mm -hmm. and I think one one thing that kind of is interesting about that, but also tragic, is that you have these stories about weird Japan, and they overshadow some of the other stories. You know, that could be told. So you know, you have like man marries a cockroach in his imagination, and you know they have sex, Brawr! and that becomes this new uh, kind of content for us to all respond to whereas you know at the same time we have something like this going on with johnny and associates where it's like okay wait a minute i mean who should we be talking about the weird japan on that side or actual abuses that could be dealt with and you know exposed and talked about like you that, that story that you just mentioned about uh, ladies and soap plans i mean i I can't believe that there'd be no interest there. But then again, maybe I'm giving people too much credit. It's like, well, maybe in fact, they don't want to hear about the workers and about their lives. They're just more happy to sort of have this weird, fun Japan story. Yeah, yeah, they'd rather, you know, giggle at like tentacle porn and, you know, Lolita's and um, then think about there's the, the actual people that are caught up in these situations. Yeah. That's kind of a depressing. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if we can. Uh, <laughs> it took a took a turn took for the a worse turn there. For the worse, yeah. Um, well, I yeah, I don't know how I want to kind of wrap this up. I mean, there are positive aspects to to being an idol fan. Um, I've certainly enjoyed enjoyed myself quite a bit. Um, going to concerts and meeting other fans, and it doesn't have to be. I think it doesn't have to be exploitative. I don't know. I mean, it, uh, the, do you have any <laughs> anything positive? We yeah, can yeah, here? absolutely. Yeah, I think you're 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 100 right that you know we look at these stories about how bad you know it was and can be for particular performers and for companies, but we also have so many people I think who are performing and they're living their best life. You know, I was just talking to an idol who kind of like we sort of shared some some background 
her parents had gotten her into Macross when she was relatively young and she was interested in this and then idols and so on became more of a part of her life and then that changed the way that her career developed and she became herself uh, a, a foreign idol. And it was really great to talk to her because she was, you know, describing her life as it was, you know, and as it is now. And there's so much more, you know, vibrant and lively now. And she had this thing that she wanted to share with people and she was performing. She was in front of people the way she had, she never thought she could be before. I absolutely believe that idols can be a force for good. It's just, we have to make sure that we don't have these people above them who are manipulating and, and exploiting them in ways that, you know, they make look consensual. They're like, well, look, that person knew what they were getting into, or look, that person signed a contract, right? Whatever it might be, that makes it really easy to blame the person or forget the person who is being abused. So I think that what I would say is there's more examples in my, despite, you know, 478 uh, uh, you know, people coming out saying that they had the, the, that Johnny had these encounters with them. That's a huge number, but think about the number of idols in Japan. How many there are now around the world? Think about how many idols there are. There's definitely a lot more people who are doing it in a way that isn't exploitative, that is empowering for them then i think we want to give attention to them like we were sort of joking before the podcast started about Moritaka uh, Chisato, but she's a good example i think of someone who understood herself as a fiction and then she performed that she performed the hell out of that and became this icon for people and they knew what they were getting she gave them what they offer what they were what they came for and that sort of became a mutual relationship that they were all kind of performing and consuming an idol image. I think that's kind of beautiful, really, where there's there's no confusion about what you're getting or who's performing. You're just kind of there for the same reasons. You're vibing. You're getting your energy levels up. You're, you're sort of feeling good about life and about yourself and about other people. That's, I think, a positive force in the world. Yeah, there is something very appealing about um, about, yeah, just looking at beautiful people entertaining you and just making you smile um and the act that i i like to uh, touch on is golden bomber uh, are you you're familiar with golden bomber uh, golden bomber is great yeah, yes yeah um I've, I've seen them live actually uh it was a lot of fun but they're they're another act i think that have kind of i mean they they sort of stayed an independent group um they've really maintained that public uh, fiction that you know and I, I think they've just they've carved out a nice niche for themselves as just this independent idol group I mean they're not as active now but yeah they're just entertaining people on stage putting out great music um, so I mean it is possible I think to kind of carve out this career as a, a positive idol so yeah maybe that's a nice nice ending button <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And I think if people are not aware of idols, I hope that this is something I'd like to sort of underscore here. If if you're unfamiliar with idols, please don't let the Johnny's case be the only thing you know. Because in fact, there's a whole lot more going on, and there always has been, than just Johnny's. Johnny's was successful at dominating the TV realm, right? Advertisements and TV integrated into a system that he exploited. 
exploited that system so well that people that they didn't call him on the stuff he was doing behind the scenes. But I think that there's so many idols who existed before, during, and after that who are so interesting and so you know fascinating to to follow and to and just fun you know to be around that, that I think it's worth you know it's worth not letting Johnny's be the final word on it for you. Even the older ones, you know, Sanjo Hideki. I've never heard anyone say a bad word against him. Um, or yeah, a guy like Go Hiromi still, I mean, he just had this great, um, he just did a first take on YouTube. <laughs> you know, he's still, he's still glittering it up, even though he must be in his sixties by now. Um, but yeah, yeah, there's like all of these new, new and upcoming groups, um, yeah, all the independent idols. And yeah, I think there's, um, there's a lot to appreciate about idols. Um, but I guess, you know, there is, there is the dark side and we can't forget it, but you also can't let it turn you off of something that could be a very positive form of entertainment in your life. Yeah. And I think that it's also possible and even necessary to have both of the, we talked about sort of having two thoughts in your head at the same time. I think it's also possible to have two processes going on at the same time where you say, look, I'm a fan of this idol. And at the same time, I critique what's going on inside the idol industry, right? Mm. That reminds me of those old videos by Anita, uh, Anita Scarsesian, where it was the same thing, right? She's trying to hold this in, in mind. You can be a fan and you can also be a critic, right? Sometimes you need to be both at the same time, right, it, to, to really get into it. And more recently, you mentioned uh, Naniwa Danshi. I'm actually a, a pretty big fan of theirs. <laughs> so it, it's kind of like, well, cute. you know. They're very cute. They're very and so cute. It's, it's, it's kind of like, I wonder, wouldn't it be more honest if we held them in focus and at the same time said, look, all the stuff going on around them and in the background and that kind of stuff needs to be brought to light. But let's not punish the idols or the, or, you know, the fans for their interests and their their chosen career paths like that whole thing about stigmatizing you know all of the idols and all johnny's fans are bad and all johnny's idols are untouchable like that's not only an overcorrection that's an abuse in and of itself like i i, I really hope that they don't go down that path and i, I see some people are going full scorched earth and i think that's going to be you know if we do that we're going to be burning a lot of people who don't deserve it. And I think it also risks a backlash of fans that um, they feel personally personally attacked by that. And I think maybe less willing to hear negative um, things about Johnny or about the idol industry because they do feel so defensive. Um, and I, because I, I've seen this um, with people that are fans of, of idols who have transgressed. Um, like, I'm not sure if you've followed the Burning Sun scandal in Korea, mm. but, um, you know, the fans of, of an idol like Big Bang Sungri, who, you know, was sent to prison. Um, but the more that he got attacked for things that he did not do, or was um, accused of doing these just, I mean, monstrous things that he did not do. Um, his fans were less willing to accept the things that he did do. And I think that you risk, um, when you do go full scorched earth, um, I, I think you risk 
turning these fans into people that just close their ears completely. I saw that happen with AKB48 as well. Like the, the more people critique them, you know, this is the, when I was doing the, the research on their global perception, it was, you know, the, the two, late 2010s around that time. And, you know, the more people would critique them overseas, the more their fans in Japan would be like, oh, look at the foreigners who don't understand. Like and they would, it would basically help them to you know to come to ranks like to form ranks exactly and be like yeah and it, it it didn't help at all like they, they weren't the more we critique them from a position of you know moral goodness and knowing the more we did that the more they sort of closed up ranks and said like well you'll never understand you're just an idiot in fact the more you talk about it the more we love our idols because we're going to protect them and support them so i think the conversations that need to be had aren't being had. So there has to be kind of a way where we, we we're not just kind of like going for one direction or another direction. We're going at this in a way that we can then moderate discussions that will be really productive. And I think that's the next step to have here, not just the shock and the awe, you know, oh my God, I can't believe this happened. How terrible is our idols? Let's put that aside for a second and say, well, wait a minute, what exactly was going on? What goes on in our own countries, our own industries? Like all these are questions we could be asking that will help us, I think, to have more uh, empathy for the performers and for their fans. Yeah, yeah, certainly the kind of over-the-top moral indignation does not help. <laughs> it really doesn't help things because <laughs> it just clo- yeah, it just closes people's ears to messages that they might otherwise be receptive to if delivered in a different in a different way do you want to give um a little closing spiel do you have anything to promote um anything that you'd like to direct people to i mean i can link to anything in my show notes so i would say if it's one thing that i would like to promote it would be to check out that um that book idols and celebrity in japanese media culture and especially the chapter on the Jimisho system, because the Jimisho system, that chapter by W. David Marks, uh, lays out a lot of really interesting points. You know, it's way ahead of its time, but he was laying out sort of the ways in which compounded star power allows for people to, like Johnny, to sort of do what they want to do. And he gives reasons why, you know, the five points why the, um, the, Jima show agencies were able to, to get the power they had. And he ends up with this really interesting point, which is, um, well, basically with the collapse of the television system and fans responding in new and interesting ways, we can sort of see the potential for the future, right? Which will not be a future that is run by this particular closed system, integrated closed system. And I think that's where we are right now. So I think we're at a point, we're at a juncture where that may, that maybe will get us started thinking, but what do we not want? What do we want? And how can we sort of talk to each other about about it in a way that will be respectful and mutual and will lead to a better future for everyone? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting book. And I think one, the collection of essays has yet to be surpassed, I think. Um, in any of the volumes I've encountered. So yeah, I definitely, I also recommend that. Um, and I will link to, I will link to it <laughs> so you can find it. Um, yeah, well, thank you so much for, for talking. And um, yeah, this was really interesting. And next time there's a big scandal or something, I'll have you back. <laughs>
Yeah, thank you. It's been a pleasure. I mean, uh, maybe we can talk about Moishaka Shisato next time. <gasps> yes! <laughs> so we, yeah. so we, we, won't, we won't have too much of this heavy <laughs> stuff. I'm glad we, had, we were able to plow through it because I think it's really important to get it out there and to have it up for discussion. But I can say, uh, honestly, it's been a pleasure. And so I, I look forward to hearing more from you in the future. <laughs> ざわめく始まりのかあの子が気になって気づけなかったんだ君の瞳の行く先が僕だってこと意地はすれ違い本音を知りたいのは僕も同じです何度も見返すタイムライン恥ずかしいほどホットライン当たれかに見られたらどう